Support for this podcast is provided by the Graduate Tax Program at LMU Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Consistently ranked among the top 10 tax LLM programs nationally by U.S. News & World Report. Tax knowledge is power. No one understands that more than Loyola Law School's tax faculty, who have extensive big accounting, treasury, Supreme Court, and other real-world backgrounds, in addition to their 100-plus years of teaching experience. Using sophisticated case studies and problems, they train students on essential skills such as tax research and how to most effectively communicate complex tax concepts to clients and decision makers. On-the-ground classes are held at Loyola Law School's award-winning Frank Gehry Design Campus in downtown Los Angeles. Remote classes, custom designed for online, are also available. Students take advantage of experiential learning opportunities at such organizations as the IRS Office of the Chief Counsel, the U.S. Attorney Tax Division, and the California Attorney General Business and Tax Division. Learn more about the Graduate Tax Program at Loyola Law School by visiting lls.edu slash taxnotes. That's lls.edu slash taxnotes. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, tax trivia. It's about time we took a break from serious topics and took stock of some of the weirder things that we've learned from working in tax. To help me out, I'm joined by Tax Notes Chief Correspondent Stephanie Johnston from her home in Pittsburgh. Stephanie, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be here again. Well, we reached out to the tax community on Twitter to get some of their favorite facts, but I'll kick things off with the thing I mentioned to get that thread going. My fact is that Donald Duck once appeared in a propaganda video urging people to pay taxes. Now, this comes from 1943. The cartoon is called The Spirit of 43. And it was at a time when Americans were paying significantly more in taxes because of the war effort. And they were also expected to pay taxes quarterly. So unlike today, when taxes are withheld, you had to have the money ready on these specific quarterly dates. And so this cartoon has Donald Duck getting paid and coming out. Now, this video is not available on Disney Plus, as far as I could tell. It is available out on YouTube. But if it were on Disney Plus, it would likely get one of those disclaimers about it having outdated cultural depictions. So Donald gets his cash and then he gets these two visitors that sort of an angel demon type of dynamic. And the angel is a Scotsman who's urging him to be frugal and save his money. And the demon is a zoot suitor urging him to go and spend his money on frivolous things. And it's interesting in that it's actually the first time Scrooge McDuck appears. He wasn't Scrooge McDuck at the time, but he became Scrooge McDuck at some point later on. And so you have these two pulling at him, trying to get him to spend his money, save his money. And the cartoon is actually really interesting to watch because there's a lot of discussion about how you're paying a lot more in taxes, but then saying what the money's paying for. Spends a long time talking about guns and it uses the phrase taxes to destroy the axes. That's catchy. It's a really fascinating cartoon. I watched it on YouTube, which I don't think is an officially sanctioned version of it. But it's really fascinating and kind of interesting as a cultural artifact because one year after it was released, withholding came in. So people didn't actually have to save their money to pay taxes anymore. Huh. Who would have thought? Donald Duck and taxes. Okay, so my favorite tax fact is that it's something that you will actually love as a dog owner and dog lover. So the Doberman Pinscher breed was actually bred by a tax collector. And around 1890, there was a guy named Carl Friedrich Louis Doberman, who was a local tax collector in the town of Apolda in Germany, who also happened to run the town's pound. He really wanted a dog to protect him while he was going on his tax collection trips because he usually had to go to some really shady areas of town. He needed some extra protection. So he decided to breed a bunch of dogs together and eventually came up with a Doberman. And that's why it's called Doberman. Okay. 
because he needed protection. That seems to make some sense. Beats carrying a gun around, I guess. All right, well, let's go to some of the things that we got from Twitter. And I'll start off with one of my favorite things that I learned from the tax community. This is pretty fantastic, is that we can understand Egyptian hieroglyphics in part due to a tax break. Now, this relates to the Rosetta Stone. And as we usually learn in school, the reason that we can understand hieroglyphics is because the Rosetta Stone was written in three languages, basically two versions of Egyptian and then in Greek. And we might learn also about how it wound up in the British Museum and how it was used to study. But nobody really talks about what it says. And so we got a tweet from David Seitz. He's at David Seitz underscore tax. And he said the Rosetta Stone is the result of tax policy changes. And so that sent me down looking at what does this actually say? Apparently, it is a decree from a group of priests commemorating the anniversary of Ptolemy V's coronation. It mentions all the good things that he did, including giving tax breaks to priests. That's cool. And so apparently this document continues and says that they'll be basically returning the favor by promoting the cult of Ptolemy and building statues and such. But there you have it. If it weren't for tax breaks for special interest groups, we might not know how to read hieroglyphics. I did not know that. I learned something new today. That's great. Speaking of antiquities and legends, hieroglyphics and all the sort, Heather Self of Blake Rothenberg, she's at at Heather Self Tax. She reminded us that Star Wars is actually a tax story. And if you go back to the opening crawl of Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, it reads, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute. Hoping to resolve the matter with a blockade of deadly battleships, the Greedy Trade Federation has stopped all shipping to the small planet of Naboo. While the Congress of the Republic endlessly debates this alarming chain of events, the Supreme Chancellor has secretly dispatched two Jedi Knights, the guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy, to settle the conflict. So if it weren't for a tax dispute, episode one would have never happened, and we could have avoided Jar Jar Binks. Well, you know, listening to that as a description of the beginning of the movie, it sounds like it could have been a better movie if they just spent more time developing that storyline, I think I would have enjoyed it more. Right? I think I would have too. So speaking of controversial historical figures, let's talk about Henry VIII. Henry VIII, everyone knows who he is. He had a bunch of wives, really cool guy, not really. Anyway, so under his rule, he introduced a beard tax, which varied based on the beard bearer's social standing. So beards, therefore, were pretty cool. So if you pay the tax, you were legit. You were like high end. So that was a weird tax fact I got from uh, Santhi Gundar, one of our UK correspondents. You can find her on Twitter at Santhi Gundar. I guess a, a beard tax could work today. It would make a lot of money while everyone's in social distancing. Right? I personally am a fan of the beard. Peter the Great, however, was not a fan of the beard. He ruled in Russia in the late 1700s, and he imposed a beard tax because he didn't want his subjects to have beards. He thought that beards were outdated, and he wanted the clean-shaven look to be a thing because it was he thought of it as more modern and, I guess, cool. So men could dodge the tax by simply shaving, but the men who wanted to keep their beards had to pay the tax, and in exchange for their payment, they got a beard kopeck as a proof of payment. And apparently the Kopec said the beard is a useless burden and it had a big beard on it. It was really cool. And if a man was found without a toque and a beard, then he was forcibly shaven. That's a different way to impose a tax. If they brought Dobermans, now that could be even more troubling. 
So now that we're on the subject of hair, let's talk about Lady Godiva. Here's a fact from Deepak Joshi, who came to us on Twitter with this fact, that Lady Godiva's story is actually a tax story. She was an 11th century Anglo-Saxon noblewoman who was married to a guy named Leofric, the Earl of Mercia. You know, the area included Coventry in the UK. And legend has it that Lady Godiva was concerned about the tax burden that Leofric was imposing on his subjects. And he sort of scoffed at her and said, well, I'll lower their taxes if you ride through the town naked. And so she did. She got on her horse. She was totally naked except for her hair, which was super long, and rode to the town. And he held up his end of the bargain and cut taxes for everybody. Lady Godiva's legend is still alive to this day, but we kind of associate her name more with fine Belgian chocolates than we do with taxation. Which brings us to our next category of tax facts. Food. So speaking of foods that aren't particularly good for you, one of my favorite tax facts is the long litigation over the definition of Pringles. And what is a Pringle? This is important in the UK because food gets a zero rate for VAT purposes, while potato crisps, as an American would call potato chips, are subject to full VAT. And in the lower courts, the court sided with Procter & Gamble saying that Pringles are not potato crisps. And this was appealed by HMRC and ended up in the Court of Appeal, where there was a long discussion about the nature of what a Pringle is. It turns out, reading through this description, that they're only 42% potato, that they are made from a dough that starts out with potato flour. It's cut into shapes and then fried. But at the Court of Appeal, they decided that 42% was enough to declare them made from potato, therefore they're crisps. Huh. Okay. You've changed my perception of Pringles forever. Interestingly enough, that while they are considered not to be potato crisps for the UK market, I have a can of them here. And for the US market, they are marketed as potato crisps. Well, once you pop, you can't stop, I guess. Yeah, you know, these cases involving classifications of food, it's an issue I think most countries and, and even our states kind of grapple with on almost a daily basis. When I first started this job, I learned about the Jaffa Cakes case. I mean, everyone was talking about Jaffa Cakes and talking about it for so long. I finally actually got the tastiest Jaffa Cakes when we went to London last year for IFA Congress. And I have to say, they were rather interesting. I could see why it was a debate whether the Jaffa Cake was a biscuit or cake. So for people who don't know what Jaffa Cakes are. They are these round, spongy treats with a layer of chocolate around it and some orange jelly in the middle. It is kind of weird. I personally like them. I'm not a fan. So Jaffa Cakes, they are popular in the UK. They're made by McVitie's, which is a brand owned by United Biscuits. And for a long time, the company classified them as cakes. And that's sort of important because in the UK, biscuits and cakes are zero rated for VAT purposes. But if a biscuit is covered in chocolate, then it's considered confectionery and is therefore subject to the standard rate of 20% VAT. And so for a long time, United Biscuits said that this is a cake, therefore zero rated for VAT purposes. So in 1991, Jaffa Cakes became the subject of a pretty famous case now. I think all tax law students know this case. So the UK Tax Authority took a second look at the classification of Jaffa Cakes and said, well, it's not a cake. It's actually a biscuit covered in chocolate. So therefore, it should be subject to the higher standard rate of VAT. 
So a VAT tribunal considered whether Java cakes are in fact cakes or biscuits. And they considered many factors like texture, size, packaging, marketing. And the tribunal was even served a giant Java cake for research purposes. So the judges ultimately decided they do have biscuit properties, but ultimately they're more cakey in nature. Some of the reasons they cited was when a Java cake goes stale, it turns hard rather than soft like a biscuit. And the sponge base makes up a significant part of the Java cake. So they decided ultimately that they are cakes and they kept the classification. And that's why they are zero rated in the UK. Also, fun fact about Jaffa cakes, the term Jaffa refers to Jaffa oranges, which are used to flavor the cake part of it. But the actual jam goo in the middle of it is actually more apricot and tangerine oil. Well, staying in the UK for the next fact, we have mine, which is that the UK tax year starts on April 6th because their tax system is older than the calendar. Now, this comes via at PJ Chapman 74, who tweeted at us from 1155 until 1752. New Year in England was on March 25th. Now, New Year and the tax year were the same, March 25th date. But that was back when England was on the Julian calendar. And Pope Gregory had come up with a new calendaring system that fixed the problem of the dates shifting around. And eventually, England adopted the Gregorian calendar, which meant that they were 11 days off. Rather than give up 11 days worth of tax for the year, they just shifted the tax date to April 5th. Now, one of the features of the Gregorian calendar as opposed to the Julian calendar is under the Julian calendar, you do a leap year every four years without skipping any. But under the Gregorian calendar, in order to fix that weird shifting problem that they have, the Gregorian calendar takes away a leap year every hundred years, unless it's a year also divisible by 400. It's a little too complicated. So apparently in 1800, even though the calendar said this is not a leap year because it's a year divisible by 100 under the Gregorian system, they decided to actually add a leap year in for tax purposes. So the tax year ended up shifting to April 6th instead of April 5th and has been on April 6th ever since. They apparently decided not to do the same thing in 1900 when there was also not a leap year. There's a lot of moving parts in that one, I admit. I would not have guessed that. So thank you for that fact. So I'm just going to take us across the pond back to the United States. So you know the phrase death and taxes. Who do you think of when you hear it? Well, that's Ben Franklin, right? Yes. But did you know that he was not the first one to say it? In a letter dated November 1789 to a French physicist, he wrote, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency, but in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. So, but according to quote investigator, the phrase death and taxes came way before Franklin's letter. It was traced back to a play called The Cobbler of Preston. This was a farce in 1716, written by a guy named Christopher Bullock. And one of the characters in this farce, his name was Toby Guzzo, who happened to be a drunken cobbler, you know, appropriate name, right? He said, you lie, you are not sure, for I say, woman, tis impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes. Yeah, so 17... 16 was the first known instance of the phrase death and taxes. I guess we were misattributing quotes long before the internet came around. Exactly. Yep. So talking about death and taxes literally, I did not know this, but up until February 2011, tax fraud was punishable by death in China. Do you know this? That seems pretty recent. A little extreme, right? It's a bit heavy-handed, I think. Apparently, according to Amnesty International, China had added tax fraud to its list of capital offenses in 1995. And in 2011, they decided to remove it, along with 12 other economic crimes from the list. It was sort of a hollow victory for Amnesty International because it was a very seldomly used punishment. Well, sticking to the bright subject, 
subject of death. Are you familiar with the Day of the Dead parade in Mexico City? I have seen pictures, but I have not attended. All right. Are you aware that it exists because of taxes? No, I didn't know that. So there's a fact that is actually widely spread around the internet, not because it's wrong, it's true, that the Day of the Dead parade is actually a relatively recent addition to the celebration. So the Day of the Dead is a holiday that's been around for a very long time, but the parade itself is actually a creation of the James Bond movie Spectre. Ah. So the story goes that this James Bond movie comes out and there's this really cool parade scene. And if you haven't seen it, I do highly recommend at least watching that scene because it's pretty much it's made to look like a single shot as he's going through the parade and goes into a hotel. And just the way that scene is shot. It's really interesting. And apparently the only reason that scene is there is because of tax breaks that were given to movies that would highlight Mexico City. Ah, okay. And now we know that this was part of the process of deciding to put this scene in the movie because if you remember a few years back, there was a hack of Sony's emails. Oh, yeah. It was believed to have been done by North Korea. And in those emails, there are a bunch of concerns that this movie is going way over budget. And they start talking about ways that they can redo the opening, which is supposed to take place in Mexico, but it's supposed to be in kind of a nondescript location. And so they add in this parade scene, which again... It's a really cool scene, really well shot. It is really cool. And But there's also discussion in there about, if you remember toward the end of that scene, after there's a whole lot of fighting, they go to a helicopter and they start flying around in a helicopter. Now, apparently the reasoning behind that was that they needed to get shots of the modern skyline in order to get more tax breaks. Ha, huh, okay. Cool. So from all of this, we learn that had it not been for these tax breaks, that parade scene might not have been shot and that people wouldn't have seen how cool that Day of the Dead parade could look and they wouldn't have actually decided to adopt that as their own celebration for the Day of the Dead. That's so crazy. I love that. It is. I really like how it sort of encapsulates how taxes can just change the reality around you. Indeed, that's the fact. Well, Steph, it's been great having you and being able to talk about weird and interesting tax facts. Where can people find you online if they want to tweet more interesting facts at you? You can tweet at me at Sung Johnston. That's S-O-O-N-G-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. Feel free to ping me anytime. All right. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me again. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary from our magazines. Joining me now from her home is Content and Acquisitions Manager, Faye McRae. Faye, what will you have for us? Thank you, Dave. In TaxNotes Federal, Francois Chadwick proposes a framework for developing administrable Pillar 1 rules that promote a solution to the taxation of the digital economy. Amy Chapman and Alexander Dobian examine the interaction between the CARES Act five-year net operating loss carryback provisions and the retained alternative minimum tax rules. In TaxNotes International, Nana Amasarfo analyzes OECD past and present international tax reform efforts. Preta Subramanian and Milan Shah examine the implications of the economic downturn for pricing controlled intangible property transfers. And on the opinions page, Marisa Piri argues that Congress should look at the research credit to help remedy the economic damage from COVID-19. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here is Tax Notes State Editor-in-Chief Jan Rausch-Sender. Thank you, Faye. I'm here with Marty Eisenstein of the law firm Brandon Isaacson to discuss his article, Alexa, is AI taxable? Published in the May 11th edition of Tax Note State. Marty is joining us by phone. Welcome, Marty. Thank you, Jean. Can you tell us a little bit about what readers can expect to see in your recent article? This article is the first of a two-part series, and it covers the taxation sales tax of AI or artificial intelligence services. 
So in the last quarter century, the use of AI has proliferated and it's been an everyday occurrence such that we even call it AI as opposed to artificial intelligence. However, the sales tax laws are from the 1930s and 1940s and generally applied to the sale of tangible personal property. There are very few states that have adapted their laws to the modern services economy. So what we tried to explore in this article was how the sales tax laws actually apply to the sale of AI services. And in particular, it's trying to squeeze a square peg in a round hole. There are six or seven potential categories of taxable services throughout the state, and none of them, no state taxes artificial intelligence per se. So the six or seven categories we explain in the article can be even the sale of of tangible personal property. So when a customer buys a Kindle or an iPad, which has either Alexa or Siri on it, embedded in that is a product called Alexa or Siri that was created by artificial intelligence. But the whole product is sold as one piece and the whole product is taxable. Then there are other six or so categories of other services from software as a service all the way through consulting that may or may not apply to the taxability. But there isn't a good fit. And so what we do is we explore three situations to see what is the most applicable and to tell and inform the practitioner as to the nature of the analysis. The bottom line is that one looks to the principal object or primary purpose of the transaction, which one can obtain through a review of the statement of work, which describes the services that the service provider will provide, as well as promotional materials and the use of terms like licenses or not. So as we describe in situation one, one of the critical features of whether or not it is software as a service is whether or not it's described as whether or not the consumer is described as getting a license to use the software. And sometimes a fatal mistake made by practitioners is to call it a license when in fact it's really a service that's being provided. So in any event, we explore the taxability of the different categories and three situations and we apply analysis to that. This is against the background of trying to decide which state's laws apply in the first place. And so sourcing can vary. And unlike the sale of tangible personal property, there may be users of this service in multiple states. So determining where to source the service and the taxability of the service is a real challenge. And Marty, what inspired you to write this article on AI? It was a confluence of three things. One is obviously our current times with the COVID-19 crisis and a number of the solutions for at least determining whether a person has been infected with COVID-19 virus rely on artificial intelligence. So you may want to input information to a provider and then that provider can give you a preliminary analysis based upon other demographics it has in its possession. The second thing was the amount of work I've done for providers of artificial intelligence and other services and to try and fit that proverbial square peg in a round hole and to advise them and some of the dilemmas and problems that occur in that regard. And the third was really the MTC's look at the effect of Public Law 86-272 on services and website internet providers. Those three things caused me to write articles both on sales tax and income tax point of view on the taxability of AI services. 
Very interesting, Marty. Now, you mentioned this was part one of part two. Do you want to give a quick rundown of what you're expecting for part two? And part two is we want to explore the income tax implications for a provider of AI services. Is that provider protected by Public Law 86272, which is the federal statute that prohibits a state from imposing income tax on certain interstate traders? And that's a big issue, as you may know, as some of the listeners may know. The Multi-State Tax Commission Uniformity Committee has made certain proposals with regard to providers of services, including providers from a website, and we explore the implications of that. And then we also consider the apportionment rules, including sourcing, as well as it would apply to a seller or provider of artificial intelligence services. Thank you, Marty. I'm very much looking forward to part two as well. Can you tell our audience where they can find you online? You can find me either on my website, which is www.brandlaw.com, or at my email, which is meisenstein at brandlaw.com. Excellent, Marty. Thank you so much. You can find Marty's article online at www.taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our Tax Analyst YouTube channel for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy in Tax Notes. That's Tax Analyst with an S. Back to you, Dave. You can read all that and a lot more in the pages of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com slash podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.